Okay, we are in Acts chapter 13. For a quick summary, Paul and Barnabas have left the church at Antioch, and the church there is going to send them to uh, Seleucia, which is on the coast. In fact, let's see if we can trace this like we did last time. Let me see if this will zoom in. There we go. Um, they leave the church at Antioch, and they're going to go to Seleucia, which is on the coast. Then they're going to travel to the island of Cyprus. First, they hit the eastern shore, and they uh, go to Salamis. There is a synagogue of the Jews there, and they preach at the synagogue, as was their normal custom. They travel to the western shore, to a city called Paphos. That is where they meet the proconsul, whose name is Sergius Paulus. He's converted, but you remember he was a follower of a man whose name was Bar-Jesus or Elymas, who was a sorcerer, a false teacher. Paul strikes him blind. That is our key word for this chapter. Uh, Acts 13, the sun is not seen. Then they travel uh, back to the mainland here. They go to Perga, and at Perga, that is when John Mark is going to leave them, and he travels back to Jerusalem and Paul is very upset about this. Then they're going to travel to Antioch in Pisidia, and we made the uh, distinguishing uh, fact that there's an Antioch, which was the home base of the Gentile church, and then there's Antioch of Pisidia. It's always called that. It is in this particular city. We have up here Paul and Barnabas received great Jewish opposition, but the city is somewhat split. Because remember, they preach in the synagogue the first Sunday, or the first Saturday, and then the second Saturday, which is the Sabbath day, all, the Bible says almost the whole city turns out to hear them. And so they actually have great, great reception and response from people obeying the gospel in the city, and that causes great opposition and jealousy and envy from the Jews. And so that's where we're going to pick up on the first missionary journey tonight. Let's pick up at Acts 13, 47. Um, of course, if you go back to verse 46, Paul is going to point out that he preached to the Jews and the Jews rejected him. Now, with that thought in mind, let's pick up at verse 47. Acts 13, 47. David not reading tonight? Oh, okay, he's on uh, patrol duty tonight. So, okay, I will read tonight. All right, Acts 13, 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And so what happens here is he says, since the Jews have rejected me, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Verse 48, now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Now listen to this phrase, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now, I want you to pay special attention to that phrase, had been appointed to eternal life. He talks about the Gentiles and he says some of them had been appointed to eternal life and those who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The reason I'm focusing on this is the Calvinist, which is a large percent. Sometimes I say Calvinist, and somebody said to me one day after class, we don't know what you're talking about when you say Calvinist. Let me show you something here. 
let's see. This is the verse we're looking at right now. Acts 13 and verse 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. These are the five points of Calvinism. Calvinism is a belief that started with John Calvin, and he summarized his belief with these five points, each one the first letter of the word. This is an acrostic. You can see total depravity, unconditional election, and so forth, and it's going to spell out the word tulip. Now, it is from this that most denominations in the world have taken this and run with it. These are the points of Calvinism. Total depravity is the T. That is the idea that through Adam and Eve's fall, every person is born sinful. That is total depravity. You've inherited the sin of Adam, so you were born in a sinful condition. Then you've got unconditional election. If you are born in a sinful condition, you're going to need the help of God to get you out of this. Unconditional election is the idea that God saves those He wishes, and they are part of the elect. They are predestined to be saved. It is unconditional election. That is, you don't have a choice in whether you're part of the elect or you're not part of the elect. Then, the oops, hit the wrong button there. Then you've got the limited atonement. Limited atonement, of course, the atonement's referring to the atoning blood of Jesus, and that means that Jesus died only for the chosen ones, not for everybody. Who would he have died for? The elect, the specific people who have been elected to eternal salvation, so it's limited atonement. Then you've got irresistible grace. God's grace is given freely. It can't be earned or denied. If you are part of the elect, it is irresistible. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to reject it. If you are not part of the elect, there's nothing you can do to change that. And then the perseverance of the saints. Those elected by God have the full power to interpret the will of God. Perseverance, of course, we would typically call this the idea of once saved, always saved. That is, if you are one of the elect, and Jesus shed his blood for you, and it's irresistible, then you're going to be saved. Once saved, always saved. There's nothing you can do to change this. Now, what does that have to do with this particular verse? Acts 13.48 is a passage that is frequently gone to by those who are Calvinists to teach this because it says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So who believed the word of God? Those who had been appointed to eternal life. Doesn't that kind of sound like the doctrine of Calvinism? That there's a certain group of people that are part of the elect. Those are the people who have been appointed to eternal life. So who are the ones that are going to believe the truth? Those who have been appointed to eternal life. So this is a favorite go-to passage of those who believe in Calvinism. Now, the King James says this. It's interesting that the King James Version had a strong Calvinistic influence, and you can see that in several different passages. This phrase, as many as were ordained to eternal life, the phrase were ordained is what the King James says. This version says, the New King James says, had been appointed. The term ordained means to arrange or to set in order to determine 
Here the word may be either in passive form, were ordained, or a middle form, which means they determined themselves. And this is according to Linsky's Greek. Hence the sense of the passage could be this. Those who believed were those who had determined for themselves that they had been offered and would accept God's gift of eternal salvation. Now, that would be consistently um, true of everything else we see with the gospel. Instead of being they had been appointed to eternal life or were ordained for eternal life, it is a completely appropriate translation to say they determined for themselves that they uh, were going to re receive eternal life. And I believe that that is a more appropriate uh, translation, and it certainly is one that is allowed by the Greek. Now, um, somebody might say, well, that is easy to say. Uh, McGarvey, in his commentary, says that uh, this particular word carries with it the idea of being disposed toward something. And so those who were disposed toward eternal life, that is, they heard the gospel, and they were disposed to accept it, they believed. Again, that fits perfectly with what we see in the gospel. So I think this is the idea. Those people who determined themselves, determined for themselves, or were disposed to accept it, they are the ones that believed. All right, um, can you think of any passages? I don't want to make this a class about Calvinism, but very quickly, can you think of any passages that would refute this idea of God has determined some people to be lost and some people to be saved? How about some of these? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How could you reconcile the idea that God has appointed some to eternal life and so they're going to believe, and others have not been appointed to eternal life, so they're not going to believe if God is not willing that any should perish. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What would that say to the concept of a limited atonement? Okay, God so loved the world, that is, the entire world that he gave his only begotten son. How about 1 Corinthians 9.27? That was where Paul said, but I buffet my body daily, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Some versions say, lest after I should have preached to others, I should lose my own soul. So the apostle Paul was saying, I, when he says, I buffet my body, that is, I'm trying to keep myself under control and not give in to fleshly lust and sin, because I don't want to lose my own soul. Now, if you're part of the elect and it's perseverance of the saints, then you can't lose your own soul. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 says that God would have all men to be saved. How can you explain that if he has appointed only certain people to eternal life? Now, we could have a whole class on this and a whole lesson on this, but that's not the point. I simply wanted to mention that because this is a favorite passage of uh, people that will hold to Calvinism. All right? Let's go to verse 49. Acts 13, 49, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, 
and expelled them from the region. It's very interesting that when the word started being spread throughout the region, the Jews stirred up the devout and the prominent women, it says first. I got to thinking about that, and it occurred to me, would you say that it's ever true that the women in the church have a very powerful influence on what goes on in the church, even though they're not the leaders in the church? In what ways? Okay, through their husbands. Do you think that uh, it has ever been the case that an eldership has decided something and then they go home and they talk to their wives and then they come back the next week and they have made a different decision? I think that's happened. I'm, I'm, I feel sure that that's happened. Uh, I don't have any particular case in mind when I say that, but sometimes could it be that if the women in the church decide that they want to have something done, that they can go and influence the men and get that done. Not saying there's anything wrong with that, but could that happen? Sure. It's interesting that it says first that the Jews went and stirred up the prominent women in the city. And then it also says that uh, chief men, but it mentions the women first, and they raised a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. It's also interesting to me that almost every time we see the Word of God start to grow, immediately there's persecution that arises. And I think that has been true all down through the ages. Why is that? Because the devil is just not going to let the Word of God prosper. He's going to attack it, and he's going to cause persecution because of it. All right? Verse 51 says, But they shook the dust off their feet against them, and they came to Iconium. When it says that they shook the dust off of their feet, this is Paul and Barnabas. They were expelled from the city, and once they left the outskirts of the city, they shook the dust off of their feet. What does that mean? Their feet were dirty, right? What's the point of shaking the dust off their feet? I think this goes back to something that the Lord said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 12, when he sent his disciples out on the limited commission, he said, when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. That is, if it's worthy, that is, they receive the message. If it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The idea of shaking the dust off your feet was something that was symbolic. And the idea is that you don't even want the dust from that city on you. You're going to shake it off and you're going to move on. Is there a right time for us to give up on trying to teach someone the gospel? Are there some people that we should say, you know, that, that's that, I'm moving on. Doesn't this seem to be what this implies? That he says, if you come in and they won't receive it, shake the dust off your feet and move on. 
that is not always an easy decision to make. And I think particularly if it's someone that's close to us, I can remember someone years ago, I was trying to teach this person, uh, I was trying to teach uh, a family member the gospel, and the husband got very, very mad. And he called me on the phone, and he said, I don't want to hear this garbage. You keep this garbage away from me and my family. And I said, okay. And I said, if you change your mind, I'm open to talking to you. And I never tried to approach him again. You think that was the right decision to make? At some point, you have to make a decision like this. I want you to look at this. This is Matthew 7 and verse 6. Jesus says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. That is a very powerful statement when you read it and you really think about this, because when he says, don't give that which is holy to dogs, he's talking about the message. The message is holy. And he is saying that there are some who are not going to receive it. There are some who are going to trample it under their feet like swine's wood pearls. And he says, then they're going to turn and rend you or tear you. You know what the implication of this passage is? You have to make the decision who these people are. It is upon you to know who the people are that you should not cast your pearls before. How do you do that? This is going to involve a judgment call on our part, and it can be a very tough thing to do. I'll give you an example of something that happened years ago when I was working with True for the World. We had a person that called us out of the blue, and he said, I'm interested in learning the gospel. Can I ask some questions? And we said, um, sure. And for weeks, he would call, and he would, he would ask questions about the gospel, and he would say, what about this? What about this belief? And we would keep answering, and we thought, hey, this is going great. Finally, after several weeks or months of this, he called us, and he said, I just thought I'd let you know what I've been doing with all of this material. He said, uh, I'm a stand-up comedian, and uh, he said, I've sent you a link so that you can watch my show. And he had a puppet of the devil, and he was making fun of the Church of Christ. And so he would ask questions or make statements, and then he would take the material that we gave him, and he would use the puppet of the devil. Well, um, had we known that in advance, we certainly could have applied Matthew 7, verse 6, because that would have been a clear case of this. It's not always that clear, um, but if we had known that, sometimes it is clear, because sometimes people are abusive, you know what they want to do with it, but we feel compelled. We think, oh, i got to answer it. And the Lord says, there's some cases that you can look, you don't have to answer it. It is time to move on. In this case, uh, in Acts chapter 14, they had been thrown out of the city. They shook the dust off their feet and moved on. Certainly, it was a right thing for them to do. Now, Acts 13.52 says, And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. When it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit, this is probably a reference to miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit. Almost always in the book of Acts, when you read them being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what it's talking about. Because they would go from city to city, 
They were using miraculous powers of the Holy Spirit to confirm the message and to confirm the word. And so they would go to the next city and they would uh, use miraculous abilities. All right, let's go to Acts chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they, in fact, let's go back to the map here for just a second since they got thrown out of the city. And now they have gone, they've been thrown out of Antioch and Pisidia and they're going to go to Iconium, just to trace where we are here. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. From Antioch to Iconium is about 75 miles. And so in a car, it'd take us about an hour, but if you're walking, this is going to be several days it took them to get there. Once they got there, they did their usual thing. They went to the synagogue of the Jews because that's where they were going to get an audience to hear. And it says a great multitude of Jews and Greeks. This would have been Jews and Gentiles believed the word of God. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Now, I want you to notice something that is very interesting. In verse number one, it says, a great multitude believed. Verse two says, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Let me show you something here on this chart. In verse number one, you see at the end that um, a great number of the Jews and the Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews... The Greek word here for unbelieving is actually this particular word. It literally means disobedient. Why it was translated as unbelieving in this passage, uh, some commentators think that this probably related to a Calvinistic influence on the part of the King James translators. But if you look up this particular word that's translated as unbelieving, it is a word that carries with it disobedient. So literally what he's saying is this. And so uh, a great multitude of Jews and Greeks believed, but the disobedient Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Why is that significant? Why would it matter that it's translated as unbelieving? If you understand that belief is oftentimes used as a synecdoche that refers to believing and obeying, then it's not a problem. If you believe that all that is necessary to do is believe, then this can become a problem. But you see what he, how he contrasts these. Some believed, others were disobedient. And it shows that believing is equivalent to obeying. All right? The, a great multitude believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. It is interesting to me that the people that rejected the message, instead of just saying, ah, forget about it, we reject it, we're going to move on, they weren't content to do that because they didn't want the message. What did they do? Yeah, they're going to go, it says they poisoned the minds of other people. 
They didn't want the message, so they couldn't just ignore it. They couldn't just move on. They wanted to poison the minds. And it made me think about our society today. People that don't want Christianity don't seem to be content to just ignore Christianity. They want to attack Christianity. They want to bring down Christianity. I think about the homosexual movement. Those who don't accept homosexuality, you are going to be beaten down, and you're going to be run over, and you're going to be attacked. It is not uh, satisfactory to simply uh, move on and do your own thing. You've got to be punished, and they're going to stop the mouth. I really think we are not very far removed from the time when broadcasts such as the Gospel Broadcasting Network are going to be silenced because those who are atheist, those who are pro-abortion, those who are um, pro-homosexual, they're going to be attacking these things in the name of, quote, free speech and separation of church and religion to the point that they are going to attack Christianity and stop it. I think that is just around the corner, hopefully longer than I think, but I think that it is certainly coming. All right, verse 3, therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly. Now, this is interesting because a lot of people obeyed the gospel, but then they had um, attacks going on. They had people poisoning uh, the minds of folks against them, but they stayed there a long time, and they spoke boldly. The Lord was bearing witness to the word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Again, when you see that the Holy Spirit was upon them or God was bearing witness, that is always in the book of Acts a reference to the miraculous ability. They stayed there a long time despite the opposition. You think that was a hard thing to do? When there's opposition going on, is it easy to stay and just keep stay at it anyway? And they're speaking boldly in the Lord is what the New King James says. Literally, it says they spoke boldly upon the Lord. It probably means they spoke boldly relying upon the Lord. And God was granting wonders by their hands. All right, verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Jews and the Gentiles with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of uh, Lyconia and the surrounding region. Someone made them aware of a plot that they were going to abuse them, they were going to kill them. Who made them aware of this? We don't know. Uh, there's no doubt that Paul and Barnabas were thankful, but the Scriptures never revealed to us their names. It's interesting how many people in the Bible would be great heroes, and yet we never know who their names are. So because of this, they're going to flee to the next region, and that is they leave Iconium and they go to this area. Specifically, we're mentioned two cities, and this is Lystra and Derby. It says, and they were there preaching the gospel. Verse 8, and in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, 
a crippled man from his mother's womb who had never walked. I guess before my accident, it had never occurred to me how often in the Bible we read about crippled people and paralytics, paraplegics. Uh, Of course, now that I'm in that situation, I notice it a lot. And I thought oftentimes about in the first century when they had an accident, they didn't even have the health care that we have today to be able to fix people. So anytime people were out doing physical, and they didn't have OSHA telling them how to be safe when they're out working. So there would have been more falls, there would have been more accidents, there would have been a lot of people that were crippled, that were um, paraplegics and, and so forth. And so they come across one here. He had never walked. Verse 9 says, this man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Now, this is a verse that is sometimes used by faith healers and Pentecostals because if they try to heal someone and it doesn't work, what is it they normally say? Okay, they'll say, Well, you didn't have the faith to be healed. Is that what you see in the Bible? Oops, that's the wrong slide. Is that what you see in the Bible when you read about someone having the uh, faith to be healed? Whose faith determined whether a person could be healed? You remember when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and we read about the nine miraculous gifts? One of them was the ability to heal. So if a person had the ability to heal, that was a gift given them by God. They were the ones whose faith was on the line, not the person receiving. I know that we covered this when we went through Acts chapter 3, but you remember in Acts chapter 3, the uh, crippled man, remember A, B, C, Uh, Acts chapter 1 is A, 2 is B, 3 is C, that is what? What's it stand for? The crippled man. When Peter and John came to the gate of the temple, they saw a man who had been crippled from birth, just like this man. The man said, can you give me some money? He was wanting some alms. Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And he did. How much faith did he have? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. How much preaching had Peter and John done at that point? None. So how is it that the man was healed? It had nothing to do with this man's faith. Do you remember in Mark chapter 5, there was a woman who, we're told, had an issue of blood. She had blood that she she couldn't stop bleeding. And she comes to Jesus, and she touches the hem of his garment, And Jesus said, your faith has made you whole. That's another passage that people will use to say that the person's faith was what was necessary. But faith in the Bible is defined as that which follows through in obedience. How had this woman's faith made her whole? She came to Jesus and she touched the hem of his garment. It wasn't just mental faith that made her whole. If she had had mental faith, but she had stayed home and just said, I believe that Jesus can make me whole, would she have been made whole? 
How did her faith make her whole? When she followed through, she believed he could do it, and she went to him and touched the hem of his garment. That's when her faith made her whole. And so we could go on with examples like this. In this particular case, when it says Paul was intently looking at this man, and it says he had the faith to be healed, I suspect that Paul, having the, the miraculous ability of discernment, looked on this man, he could see that the man was receptive, and because of his faith, this is a gift. Because he had this faith, he bestowed upon him this gift. That's the only way it's consistent with the other passages that we read in the New Testament. Okay, we'll stop right there.